This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to Sam Feller, a mechanical engineer and founder of Awkward Engineer about how he turned a $500 initial investment into a five-figure annual passive income and the things he does to manage his teams effectively. I'm your host, Jeff Perry, founder of More Than Engineering and creator of the Engineering Career Accelerator Program, helping engineers and technology professionals with leadership and career coaching to create meaningful careers and lives. And this is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast brought to you by EMI, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional development. Let's jump right in. Now it's time to jump into the main segment of the episode. Today I have the pleasure to have with me Sam Feller, founder of Awkward Engineer. Sam, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. So I'd love to have you introduce yourself in your own words, tell our listeners a little bit more about you, what life looks like on a daily basis, what are some of the things you're working on these days? I've had a a really zigzaggy career, Uh, started as a mechanical engineer, I went to private industry for a while. I started a company as a founder at a company that made solar-powered cell phone charging kiosks. I freelanced for a while. I ended up as a program manager at Amazon, tried more things after that, ended up as a product manager. And now I do some consulting, helping growing teams learn how to effectively run their projects. So if that wasn't zigzaggy, I don't know what is. Totally. And tell us a little bit more about Awkward Engineer and what this is and what was kind of the start of that. Yeah. So Awkward Engineer started a long time ago. So it's awkwardengineer.com. And I was working as a mechanical engineer at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. So doing all sorts of like aerospace defense things. And I had a bunch of ideas around like how to run satellite programs. I don't know, some of the tools we used. And I talked to somebody about it and he was like, what do you really want to do, Sam? And I just had this silly idea where I liked pressing red buttons. Like I thought it would be fun to have like an e-stop button as my light switch in my bedroom. And I was like, well, if I like this idea, I wonder who else would like this idea. And so I tried selling a few online and I think I sold three. So there's my mom, my dad, and a stranger on the internet. I still had like a whole bunch of these things in stock. And I was like, well, I'm not giving up yet. And so I like walked down the street to sell stuff and I closed a deal with thinkgeek.com and they bought a whole bunch of these panic button light switch kits. And like, I made some real money doing it. And I was like, you know what, this was fun. And so I got into like all sorts of other product development 
things. Like I've always liked making stuff. So it was a good avenue for making stuff. And that was really kind of where Awkward Engineer went. And since then, it's it's always been a creative outlet for things that I've wanted to make. And these days, it's really more of a blog. I write about all sorts of things. It's been fun and it's a thing that I like to keep. And I've actually gotten job interviews from the awkwardengineer.com email address. So I'm definitely hanging on to the URL. Sam, where did this come from? Like, obviously, as a mechanical engineer, like we're building, designing stuff. But where did your passion start for like just making stuff? And aside from red buttons, what are some of the other things that you've made over the years that you've enjoyed? Like as a kid, I played with Legos a lot. I don't know if you get that from other engineers that you talk to. I don't know if that's a sign. I went to a science and tech high school. Yeah, it's Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. So it's a mouthful. But it's outside, is in the D.C. area, so in Fairfax County. And I had, I suppose we could have called it shop, but it was a fancy science and tech class or science and tech school. So they called it the prototyping lab. I really enjoyed making stuff. I think that's why I went to like to college for mechanical engineering because the output of your work was always something physical and tangible. But since then, I think my interests have kind of like grown and and broadened to not just physical things, but also like software as well, and also like designing like organizations and how people work together. I also did mechanical engineering as a degree. I didn't connect at least earlier on, you know, I knew mechanical engineering, like we were creating physical things, but I didn't connect early on just how much like the tinkering and the making stuff was, was a part of that as early. It was more like, Hey, I was good at math and science and stuff. People were like, Oh yeah. Engineering's a, a thing to do. Mechanical engineering was sort of this really broad potential of where you could take your career. And so it, it made sense. And I, some of the cool things in automotive or aerospace and some of the things, you know, were potential ways to, to take it from there, but you know, would have loved those opportunities earlier, like you had a, a prototyping lab or a, or a shop to make some things and really engage in not just the the theory of what engineering is, but what it comes down to is we're trying to create things that, that do stuff. You know, sometimes it solves big problems and sometimes they're just fun, like a big red button for a light switch. But, you know, you're either solving a problem or putting a smile on someone's face, hopefully, when, when we're making stuff. So we talked a little bit about the the red button thing, but when this became a thing, like how did it lead to you like from I enjoy pressing red buttons to maybe I want to create these and start a business and sell these? Like where did that idea come from? Hey, this is just a thing that would be kind of fun to I'm actually turning this into something. Maybe it came from a lot of like desire to take control of my own destiny. I remember reading some books that were like influential on me when I was younger. And I don't know how much those books matter to me now, but maybe it set me off on the path that I did. I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, if you ever knew that book. Robert Kiyosaki, right? That's right. Like the thing that it stuck with me was he, he talked about like being stuck in a job. And if you ever get fired from that job, like you're not accruing assets, you're at the mercy of someone else. And if you can start building like some sort of revenue generating thing and make money while you sleep, then that gives you like freedom and independence. I think for him and in, in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he pursued a real estate industry, which I just didn't have interest in. I also think that around that time, shortly after I read that book, like the 2008 housing bubble popped. So maybe, maybe that also soured me on the real estate industry. 
but he, he did talk about being able to make like IP, like make intellectual property and leverage it. And so I'd liked making stuff and like making stuff that made other people happy was, or made other people laugh was also like fun. I think that led a bit to like wanting to make stuff. And then when, when someone pays you for something that you make, like it's a really rewarding feeling. And so at the same time, like I was at MIT Lincoln laboratory and just career wise, I'd been there for several years, didn't understand the path to promotion, was frustrated with my boss. And I was had interviewed at other places. And it it was this weird thing where I was like out of school for about four years and I get all sorts of like interview feedback. They'd be like, well, you don't have these skills. And so we don't want to pay you like this much to do this thing. And it it was really frustrating for me to hear. Like I'd, I'd done all sorts of design work in like machined aluminum parts. I could talk to you like up and down about like what goes into it and like fixturing and holding and like datum surfaces and references and all sorts of stuff like that. But I'd never designed an injection molded part before. Not that I couldn't, but they didn't want to pay for me to learn. I can take control of my own destiny here and I'll just make my own injection molded part. I had, I mean, that was a, another one of the awkward engineer products was making, I had this thing called a cookie dunk cup, which was pretty silly. It was the idea that you could like dunk an Oreo in a cup of milk and it had a special shape so that if your hands couldn't reach all the way into the bottom of the cup, like you drink some milk and now the, the milk level is too low. So it had this like groove at the bottom that the cookie would fit into. So even if you had like half an ounce of milk left, you could still get a good dunk. So I used that as like a Kickstarter went out and I talked to injection molding shops. I did the CAD modeling on it. I built prototypes. I tested the prototypes, learned about like tooling and tooling costs, like all this stuff. And then it turns out the Kickstarter campaign failed, which is fine. I still learned a whole bunch from it, but someone saw my Kickstarter. This cracks me up. They had a competing like cookie dunk product on the market. And he ended up licensing the cookie idea, like the cookie dunk cup for me, which is fantastic. And so I ended up being able to say like, yes, I have designed an injection molded part. This is what I learned from the experience. And so it, it held value in like future interviews. There you go. So it wasn't just like, hey, I want to create this asset in terms of revenue, but an asset in terms of an experience and a project that you went through to learn things that you wanted to learn instead of just hoping that you got a project at work that would teach you that, right? Yeah. So a lot of my projects were, I've just ended up in weird places in my career. So the consulting firm, we're a contracting firm. We did engineering work for hire and specialized mostly in usually regulated systems. So they would do like aircraft, fuel pumps, med devices. And the company started out focusing almost entirely in software. So they do like regulated software and they wanted to grow to offer full systems. So like electromechanical builds in addition to the software. I was there for three years and I was only billable to clients 15% of the time, which is wild. Like 
there are a lot of reasons why. Like they're hiring firing freezes because the company was acquired in the middle of it. They are trying to build out this new like function. So it made sense that they didn't have like all the work. They needed to have like heads on board and show expertise so they could bid on future products. So it was again like a strange career experience and I didn't have all the skills that I necessarily should have. And so one of my awkward engineer products is my second Kickstarter campaign was this thing called the the analog voltmeter clock. And I had never done a sheet metal part before. And so I designed it and I mean, there's a lot more to it. I was totally obsessed with like small batch American-based manufacturing. So it was designed to be a sheet metal product that could be made profitably in low volumes. But I also got into like circuit board development I got into embedded firmware. It led to wanting to learn more about industrial design and graphic design because I wanted this voltmeter clock to look good. My previous Kickstarter campaign had failed, so I wanted to learn more as part of this campaign. I suppose the the project-based, like I want to build this, became a good impetus for learning a whole bunch of other things. People talk about STEM all the time. It might even be on my LinkedIn profile. I'm not sure if I still have it anymore, but like STEM is like science, technology, engineering, and math. And some people started using STEAM, like science, technology, engineering, art, and math, that the art is the core why that provided the motivation for all of that. If you just said like, I want to learn about sheet metal. I wanted to make this cool little like retro clock thing that's why I did it. That gave me the drive to like push all the way through to actually make it. My oldest daughter is in, in second grade. And so they have a, they call it STEAM class. It's not STEM. They, they use STEAM in school to integrate the art idea with the other STEM topics, which is cool to, to do that earlier rather than later. It sounds like you did a bunch of different projects here. I'm curious for those who maybe have an idea of something that they're thinking about working on or, or trying out as a project, something they want to build, something they want to try out, a skill they want to develop. What are some of the things that worked really well for you when you were saying, hey, I want to learn this, but I have to manage the learning of this experience. I need to manage the project and I need to find suppliers for these things and all this stuff. What are some of the things that really worked well for you to be this one person show, but manage a pretty complex project that maybe you hadn't built something like that before? There's no substitute for learning by doing and then not being afraid to just say, well, let's do the next thing. You don't have to eat the whole elephant all at once. And then from my time at that contracting firm, they did a lot of systems engineering. I think that gave me a good mindset for a lot of these problems. Like when you're doing a, a med device, there's this thing associated with it called the design history file. And so, which is the design history file is usually shows like some sort of evidence that you designed things on purpose for reasons. And there are like all sorts of other artifacts that might become part of it. It's been a long time since I've done med device stuff. So I don't remember like all the artifacts that you generate along the way. They would take this like systems mentality. And so they'd be like, well, we know this is the larger systems decomposition, but at each level of the system, we know that we're going to have to show that like we designed it on purpose, that we were able to build it, that we were able to test it. And all those things exist at each level of the system. They would organize their document files to support this as well so that you could get through your FDA audits like really quickly. But that sort of systems mentality 
of like we're breaking this down into pieces and in each like piece of the system we're going to have certain like amounts of work that we're going to need to do to demonstrate that we can do things what i was taught back then and i still carry to this day is you're looking for like binary things that are done or not and so when you start looking for like things and looking for deliverables you get caught up less in the work that you're trying to do and you sort of keep your eyes a little bit more on the prize the goal you know with the sheet metal i guess was to to get to a sheet metal design that could be like assembled and integrated how to design it like where to design it the cad package didn't matter as much at the end of the day you could say do i have a sheet metal design that i can like take to a vendor to quote that's the thing that i need and when you keep your eye on the prize like that i think you get less caught up in some of the minutia and the details of what might like waylay you and then i think it also helps to say like other people have done sheet metal before or learned how to design sheet metal like clearly this is possible and so that would also help and so trying to get to that what is the definition of done idea for not just the whole project but the different steps along the way and focusing on that instead of every little tiny detail cuz engineers and and anyone really can find themselves being caught up in things that don't really matter to the success of what you're trying to get to in the end so it's great you're mentioning like over the years you've also gotten interested beyond making things you got interested in software you got interested in teams and how do we manage teams effectively and form teams and stuff like that i'm curious because we have a lot of people who are in teams or leading teams who are listeners to the podcast what are some of the things that are important to you as you think about managing a team especially in maybe our hybrid remote world that we're in now that you're seeing work really well both from the management or leadership side but also from how we form teams with the right people like what are those principles that are really important to you that you've seen to be effective I was a program manager at Amazon which on some pretty intense like large scale programs that had to push me I developed like a different mentality around like leading larger groups of people and building systems to do that some of the like hiring people forming teams i don't think i can speak as articulately about that but running larger projects i'm happy to share what i learned i was working on this program called the dash cart which is this like cloud connected machine vision enabled shopping cart that would just allow you to drop items into the basket and as soon as you dropped it in the machine vision algorithms would identify what it was it was a pretty cool experience this was a skunkworks team and it like a sidebar i count myself as pretty lucky to have been at a skunkworks at one of the largest companies in the us or in the world really and we basically as a hardware engineer or being like a, a program manager for a hardware program we were given essentially like infinite budget like it was effectively infinite money and we could just go fast and it was awesome. And Sam, continue on that side note just in case any of our listeners aren't familiar with what Skunkworks means, can you share what that is? Skunkworks is named after a group at Lockheed. They invented all the coolest airplanes. So the the SR-71 Blackbird, the F-117 Stealth Fighter, the U-2 spy plane, I don't know if I missed any in there. But they were known for being this like small elite group of engineers who also moved tremendously quickly and not only did they move tremendously quickly the things that they built and delivered were game changing so typical development timelines for a fighter jet i think are like on the order of 10 years 
and they developed the F-117 stealth bomber, which was like stealth technology. So it's game-changing technology as well. And I think their development cycle was like 24 months, if not faster. So that's skunk works are about like small groups of talented people that make cool things. And eliminating a ton of the bureaucracy that would normally be there and saying you have all the resources you need to just do and accomplish what you need to do, which is cool. You were in a, a part of a team that was designed like that, but within Amazon doing some hardware stuff on this project. That's right. Program, I think I had, there were around 30 people that I was working with across disciplines. So I was, I was the hardware program manager and I was working with electrical, mechanical, firmware, optics, industrial design, supply chain, operations, like the works. And often working with the machine vision folks, like usually as a liaison, but sometimes doing more work with them. It was a real like growth experience for me. So as an individual, like running my own Kickstarters, I was able to take projects end to end and have sort of that, like that drive to finish and look for deliverables. And I hadn't learned how to like scale or lead a team that large yet. So one day someone said something to me, they're like, Sam, you're, you're really cross-disciplinary and you run around and you talk to everybody, which is awesome, but you need to stop running around and talking to everybody. You need to build a system so that information flows to you. And I was like, okay, I'll think about that. And then I was talking to another program manager who is a mentor of mine and asking him about like his process and his flow. And he was like, I insist that everyone distills information for me. And I ask about like, what do I get and when do I get it? And it was those two things like that clicked together. I need a system so that information flows towards me. And I need to ask the information that I need is what do I get and when do I get it? And so I started thinking about like, what are the habits of this team? What are they already doing today? What are the things that I can like piggyback off of and leverage so that when I build a system, like the system is designed for the engineers that I work with, what do I get? When do I get it? It's pretty simple. It turns into a few more questions. Like, when am I supposed to get it? Like, if it's not going to happen, then why? How did that happen? And then what are you doing about it? Like, what are you doing next? And do you need anything from me? And it turns out you can answer those questions in about like two tweets, like 280 characters or whatever. I started leveraging for that team. They loved using this document software we had called Quip. They used it like every day, all day. And so I started building out like workflows and schedules and things to answer like, what do I get? When do I get it? In in Quip and they started using it. And I haven't learned all like the design processes yet to get people to really adopt it. I started believing in in status meetings. And so I transferred from that Skunkworks team to another team at Amazon is in Alexa. And I was working with a whole bunch of software teams. So I think I said at the beginning, very zigzaggy. So at this point I'm a program manager for software. And they were using Jira, which is like a software, I mean, you can use it for other things, but it's a project management tool. And like they were in Jira all day, every day, moving tickets along. And so I was able to get them to organize things and leverage what they were already doing to build a system so that they would summarize at a high level, like, what do I get and when do I get it? 
I had three teams working on disparate things, completely different ends of the stack. There was a infrastructure engineering team. There was like a natural language processing team. There was a, a recommendation team, like completely different things. Like my mind was exploding. And so I built the system on top of Jira that just said, what do I get? When do I get it? And to make sure people actually did it, I just like implemented a little status meeting. And it turns out like you could write your status update in all of like two minutes. And so in the first two minutes of the meeting, I would tell people to to write their updates ahead of time. But you could tell like people would be typing away, writing their updates. And then we would just do a status read and it would take 15 minutes. And so like it's 15 minutes once a week, gave a really high level summary and like the engineers totally bought into it. And so I like really learned how to build this system so that information flowed to me. And so I stopped wasting my time hounding people for status updates and then started spending more time on like strategic things. And so that's my like advice on running teams or what I learned about working with engineers and larger groups of people. Now, as you're also working with engineers and teams, there's getting the statuses, but we're also trying to to coach and help people grow. And maybe there's changes or people aren't performing as well as we would like them to and stuff. So talk to us about the importance on your mind of like those moments and opportunities where you had to give feedback and, and how you think about creating safe spaces when you are doing that so that people are ready to receive that and you can really move the needle instead of getting people on the defensive side when, when those feedback moments come. Giving feedback can be really hard and really awkward, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. And the more you practice it, like the more often you can give small pieces of feedback, the easier it becomes. One of the best books for that, I think, was One Minute Manager. I don't know if you've read that one, but I'd recommend that. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I haven't read that one. Yeah, it talks about like making clear goals, giving feedback, like catch people doing something right, which is kind of that reinforcing feedback. And also like, it's obvious if someone's doing something wrong, you need to correct it. And so that book helped like adjust my mindset on like how to get good feedback to people and why it's so important. Radical Candor is another book that I would recommend. It it talks a lot more about feedback, but, but One Minute Manager is just so much shorter and easier to digest. I feel like Maybe I have one like insight thing that I've brought to the world. So when I transferred off of the Skunkworks team, they were like, Sam, you're you're a rock star. We'd hate to lose you. What can we do to get you to stay? And I was like, that's a heck of a time to be telling me that. I'm leaving the team now. And similar thing when I left Alexa, they're like, well, we'd hate to lose you. Is there anything we can do to get you to stay? And I was like, that's the wrong time to be asking me that question. And so I think a lot of the feedback, none of the books talked about this, was how important it is to tell people the positive feedback, just where they stand and how you think of them. And sort of the the analogy that I use is that like I'm married and I tell my wife all the time that I love her. It would be really weird for her to be like, well, I'm, I'm divorcing you, Sam. And I'd be like, that's the wrong time to say, but I love you. And she'd be like, well, why wouldn't you tell me that before? Like, that's not how relationships work. I think like employment relations are, they're not the same as personal relations, but they're analogies. And so I think it's really important to tell people 
that you enjoy working with them. Or I think it's also okay to say like, you're in the wrong seat. You don't really fit here. I don't think you're doing that great a job. Like, I don't need to fire you, but you should know that. Maybe you should think about looking for another job. And, you know, maybe we can also talk about like what's going better. And the story that I tell that woman that I work with and I'll leave her name out, but I was like, Hey, you know, I really enjoy working with you. I want to keep you. I want you to like stay on this team. This has you know, been really good. And in that moment, she said, this might be a good time to tell you that I'm pregnant. And I was like, Oh, and so by me taking the initiative and not waiting until like the day she was quitting to say, but I really like you. I want to keep you like that by taking the initiative to tell people where they stand, it really creates this like environment of culture or this environment of trust. When I said, I like you, I want to keep you if there's anything else you want to do. And she said, like, I'm pregnant. It made a safe space for her to share that she was pregnant, but also like she had the confidence that like, I just told her that I wanted to keep her. And so she came back from her pregnancy and I'm still work with her. So that is my like how to give feedback maybe it's different from like the coaching or like feedback in the moment, but it's at at like a higher level. I think it's really important to tell people where they stand. Well, this has been a fun conversation. We've talked about all sorts of different things, Sam. At this point, we're going to transition to the take action today segment of the show. We'll get one more final piece of actionable advice. We'll be right back. Now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. Sam, we've had a fun conversation. We've talked about growing side businesses. We've talked about managing and and leadership and things. As we were ending off, we were talking a lot about this leadership topic of how we build these safe places and have some of these conversations. What would you say to those who are listeners who are leaders now or aspiring leaders or just have influence? What would you say to them as far as a final takeaway that they can do today, this week, to build and help their teams? Especially for engineering leaders, but I think, you know, for your peers as well. If you haven't told the people around you how you feel about them, I hope it's positive that you enjoy working with them and that you want to help them and keep them. Why wait? You tell them today. I think the reaction that people will get from telling their their staff or their team, like, hey, you've been doing a good job. I really enjoy working with you. Like providing specifics about the work they do, also important. And saying like, I want to help you and keep you. Is there anything I can do? I think is just the easiest thing to keep and retain people and just provide for better working relationships. And I think it's just the right thing to do to take care of each other as people. That is my take action recommendation. Well, thanks so much for that, Sam. And really appreciate our conversation. If people are interested in learning more about you, connecting and learning more about Awkward Engineer or any of the other things that you have or have done, where would you point them? Awkwardengineer.com and contact information is there. Thanks so much and hope we stay connected and wish you nothing but continued success. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I really hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. You can go to www.engineeringmanagementinstitute.org where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books that we mentioned. And don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars also at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. 
Additionally, for any engineers who are struggling and need help taking the next career step, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.com dot org.